the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, here we are back to Fighter World, and today it's Steve Lowe, AM, Wing Commander, retired. Age 19, Steve's pilot's course at RAAF Pierce would do all the training of the newly acquired Mackie jet. Steve has said that it was very exciting strapping into the front seat of his first full flight gear. It was great fun for a kid almost straight out of school. He wanted to fly fighters and in November 1969 when he arrived at RWF Williamtown, the thunderous sound of mirages in full afterburner on takeoff hurt your ears. What a blast to be strapped into such an animal. Eventually he became experienced. He joined 77 Squadron, four ship aerobatic team and flew the slot. In April 1972, he was posted to 75 Squadron Butterworth and spent two years there. He was then posted to Melbourne as aide-de-camp to the Governor of Victoria for two most interesting years. Promoted to Squadron Leader in January 1981, he was then posted back to 77 Squadron, which put him in charge of photo recon. For the RAAF Diamond Jubilee Air Show, he was given the task of leading two ship aerobatic teams. At the end of that year, he was posted to Directorate Air Force Safety. Now, for his efforts in this posting, he was awarded the AM. His final posting was CO 77 Squadron on Hornets. He left the RAAF after 20 years service and it was a very satisfying and enjoyable career and he has since moved on. He's been a mayor somewhere in Australia. He's raised beef cattle and he's with us here at Vita World. G'day, Steve. Hi. Nice to have your company. Now, you joined in July of 1968. Why did you join the RAAF? Because I wanted to fly. What led to that wanting to fly? What did you... I've always been interested in mechanical things, technical stuff, and uh, I loved aircraft, and I particularly wanted to fly the Sabre. I was at uh, an Army cadet camp in Singleton once, and a couple of them flew over at very low altitude. That magical experience where you can see... The person in the cockpit and the gleaming wings and everything else. And I guess that was was what decided it for me. And plus, I'd always been interested in fighter aircraft particularly. Sure. Did you grow up reading Biggles? No. (laughs) No? Okay. No. You were 19 when you uh, joined. Um, Had there been any other consideration when you talked about this with the family? Oh, of course. The Vietnam War was on. And... uh, my parents uh, didn't want me to join. Uh, my mother was concerned, and yet it's what I wanted to do, so they went with it. Your Mackie and Vampire experiences, the Vampire Mark III, what was that like? Mark 33. Uh, after flying the Mackie, uh, it was a much older aircraft, uh, simpler in some ways, uh, better in others. We flew it because at Williamtown here, when we first arrived, the Mackie couldn't carry any weapons. So we did our weapons training on the Vampires, which were still here, and uh, so we did that at Salt Ash, of course. Um, and being a two-seater, it was interesting sitting in an aeroplane where you could see another pilot for the first beside time. Beside you or behind you? No, beside you. Beside you, yeah. Yeah, yeah sat side by side in a cockpit that uh, was extremely cramped. And for me, we, we just sat in whatever... I think it was the left seat you sat in, but uh, I, I couldn't raise the undercarriage because uh, I couldn't get my arm to reach down the side of the cockpit. So we are over the beach before I got the gear up. <laughs> On the takeoff, <laughs> it was a horrible aeroplane. The uh, to sit in the ejection seat was uh, always had an angle that you sat at, and because the uh, firewall at the back of the aeroplane 
at the back of the cockpit was uh, leaning f backwards anyway, the, you, you ended up being sitting forward in the seat, which is most uncomfortable, and then craning your neck up. Uh, 20 minutes in, on the first flight, I was thinking about jumping out of it. It was that uncomfortable. You are a tall gentleman, so yeah. did the height cause any impediment in those cockpits? No. Uh, well, the Vampire certainly did. The, the Machia didn't. Uh, Mirage, initially when I flew it, we didn't have the tree escape, right. which was a 250-foot thing behind your back in the seat that allowed you to winch yourself down out of a tree. That took an inch of legroom, and I felt it after that, but you didn't hop in that thing to be comfortable. Tell us about the number 70 pilot's course. Uh, tell us your journey through it and, and how you felt, given the kid that wanted to always fly. What was going through your head then? Well, when you arrive, well, we arrived at Point Cook. We uh, settled into Air Force life and uh, learnt how to get around the rules, learnt uh, what you had to do, how to behave, uh, how to have a haircut every week for a couple of weeks. But we were surrounded by wind shields flying about all the time and they make a fabulous sound or they used to make a fabulous sound on takeoff and we'd be doing our ground school. Uh, at the end of that we had a ride in one just as a familiar ride and going over to Pierce was uh, very exciting because uh, it was a new aircraft. There were aircraft flying around everywhere all the time, visiting aircraft. It was very exciting to uh, finally start to learn to fly. Sure. It was really magic. Uh, we had our own airfield up at Jinjin where we'd, we'd fly and you'd watch somebody else go yeah. and then come back and you'd have a go. And uh, it was uh, really a great thing to be doing. In reading your autobiography, you talked about your very first time you put on that, that suit. <laughs> Can you just yeah. reminisce on that for me? Yeah, okay. Most people, when you hop in a, a, an aircraft to learn to fly, are just sitting there, you might have a, a microphone on, set of ear earmuffs or something. And uh, this one, you wore a G-suit, a May West, the mic, everything. So when you spoke to the instructor, it had to be through a microphone. He was in the back seat. So you were on your own. I remember we were doing basic handling and uh, the instructor said to me, right, try the roll, see how that goes. And I gave it a go and he said, oh, go on, be a devil, give it a hit. And I <laughs> gave it a hit and suddenly we're upside down and I fell down in the straps. Uh. About 10,000 feet and you could see the ground. It was quite an experience. And it was the, that sort of thing that was, it was, it was an alien world yeah. uh, to be in. You got used to it, but the microphone, the mask we had was that American horrible thing that hung out a long way, so it changed. if it wasn't strapped on tight, yes. um, it'd move around during manoeuvring. So it was really a horrible thing to use compared to the ones we subsequently got on yeah. fighters. You spoke with great excitement about when you put that suit on for the first time. I was watching an interview with some of the stars of a super movie, a, a Spider-Man movie, and they said when they put the suit on, they never wanted to take it off. Is that a, a similar feeling? You had it on? Oh, wow, now I'm in the Air Force. No, no, no. When we were issued that gear at Point Cook, we all tried them on and took photos of one another, and that was pretty good because uh, in those days it was a cotton flying suit. Right. You know, the white socks, the flying boots, you had all of that, but no, I, I didn't have any issues like that. Okay. Steve, mm. in your pilot's course, you talked about the pranks, you talked about the crashes mm. and uh, the strippers. How does that fit into the RAAF? You'd have to ask the instructors at the time. They <laughs> probably aren't with us anymore. But they arranged it and we went up to a hotel. I think it was called Lancelin. I'm not quite sure. We went there and uh, had a few beers and a dinner and uh, a stripper turned up, which for us young blokes was quite good. And, uh, she threw the garter at me and uh, I kept on to that for quite a few years before I got married. <laughs> uh, 
But yeah, that was something that uh, I don't think they do today. We also went to uh, Rottenest Island for a weekend, flew over there in a Goonie Bird and stayed. And it was all about uh, getting to know the instructors. But I must admit, at my age, they were, they were a bit alien to me. I was... Uh, I suppose quite immature, probably still am, and uh, I didn't sort of warm to them as individuals. Mm. I, my own instructors that I knew, like uh, Doug Edwards in particular, I got to know him re- reasonably well, but I, I always felt uh, typically on pilot's course you never know how you're really going, you never know uh, what's next, and you're always studying and trying hard. It's mm. a hard course, um, and yet uh, anyone wanting to fly has got to be keen to do the study and I guess the hard part is that you do the theory and then you've got to put that into practice. For instance, when uh, we first started formation flying in a jet where you've got a delay for the engine to spool up in the, the well, the Mackie was like that. People were creeping forward in formation and they'd put their foot on the brakes. And I suppose every pilot's done that. Instrument flying, for instance, you, you learn the theory and then you go and put it into practice. But when you do, you're in the back seat and you can't see out. So you're relying totally on the instruments and you've just got to believe the theory and put it into practice. Is the theory as implemented by the RAF then, was it so good that relying on the theory was really the right way to go? Oh, yeah. We we had excellent instructors and uh, the Air Force had been teaching people how to fly for 40 years or so. Mm. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, anything was... uh, needed to be changed much at all. The, the Mackie had excellent, excellent instruments and uh, you know, a suite of them. And it was designed for the Herc, I believe, so that uh, people could transition to all kinds of aircraft. Mm. And using the instruments, they, even on a, a general flying trip, a lot, of, a lot of us early on used to use the attitude indicator when we were doing uh, just general manoeuvring. And we'd move our heads around so the instructor in the back would see your head moving, a reflection in, in the canopy. But you could keep your eyes on the attitude indicator while you tilted your head and we do that sort of thing so we put them off but uh, yeah the instruments were really really good that way and you know compared to the aircraft uh, I flew most of my time on the Mirage you could do a limited panel on the Mackie but limited panel on the Mirage was the standby artificial horizon and, and you had none of the none of the other instruments that you could use in that way. So in your it, with your your heart, Mackie, Saber, Vampire, Mirage, which do you feel the most affectionate towards, and why? Oh, the Mirage, because I spent the most time on it. I have about two and a half thousand hours on the aircraft, so I sort of know it, and uh, most of the uh, time was spent associated with it. You mentioned you you joined because you watched the Sabers fly oh, yeah. over. Uh, when you actually got into one of those Sabers, did that memory reignite in your head? No, well I never actually got into one. Uh, We did the ground school here at Williamtown once we'd done the initial introductory fighter course and it was the uh, Friday before we were going to start doing the the flying stuff that the CO of OCU, which was the unit we were in called me in and said I want you to do a direct Mirage conversion, they were going to run a course. You know I took a lot of convincing before I wanted to do it because I really wanted to fly the Sabre as it was uh, you know, I hopped straight out of a Mackie into one of those, which was That's a quite big exciting. Jump. Yeah, it was speed-wise. Um, took, a, took a long time. The, the first few weeks of the course, Monday morning was pretty horrible because the skill set was so great that we'd have lost a little bit over the weekend. The instructors were, were really worried about it. We did a lot of dual flying, mm. um, but we also had, uh, you know, flew a fighter occasionally. I mean, my first solo was in a fighter. That was really nice. But as... Uh, far as um, the speed difference, uh, 
we did low navs in the Mackie at the time at 180 knots and the over the threshold landing speed was 175 in the Mirage and it was really a, a fast landing uh, compared to the 90 knots of a Mackie mm. and it was really, really quick. Same as takeoff, you had to make sure you got the gear up before it, it hit the 240 knot speed on takeoff. So I was, you know, and at altitude, you knew you were going fast. 0.95 just loping along mm. um, compared to the 0.5 in a Mackie was, you know, amazing eating up the country. Steve, in talking to a previous wing commander, he was talking about formation flying. The very first time you get into formation, there's formation in the air, there's formation taking off, then there's formation at night. Uh, what are your experiences or memories with that kind of training, that kind of learning? I don't think you'd ever lose it. I think I could do it today if I was sitting in an aircraft. So what are the skills involved? Just watching the other aircraft, the attitude of it, the aspect, and uh, maintaining position. For instance, a Mackie is a very light aircraft with a, uh, a low wing loading, so the gust response on those is fairly low, and, and compared to flying a Mirage, it was much easier, a much more solid machine to sit in formation on. But the, the basic principles of flying a jet as opposed to a prop aircraft is that you you don't get a rapid response to a throttle movement mm. and you can actually sit there and go from idle to uh, full full military power and, and and achieve nothing the difference is though i guess it's just watching the other aircraft you're talking about close formation yes but, close but, formation but the real formation that fighter pilots use is uh, a combat type formation where you might fly a mile apart paralleling so mm. that you can see behind the other aircraft mm -hmm. without, uh, and, and for instance in a Mirage, you couldn't see your own, your own six o'clock properly, but by doing that, you could easily see so the So you're other helping persons. each other. Yeah, so it, where the skill really becomes in that is to maintain formation from a mile away and heading in the same position, holding station, and also the real important thing to be doing is to be, have your eyes out looking looking for, the, you know, the, the would-be enemy. So how many aircraft would be involved in a combat formation? Well, we used to use four. Um, one would be in a, what we would call a combat position on, on each of the two elements. So that, that, but they'd be a mile apart. And as the, the leader, it's pretty easy. You set the speed and, and go along whatever, wherever you're going. But as the number three, who's the person flying abreast, there's a real skill there. And also in not wasting fuel so that the wingman can hang on to you and you're not going too far out of position. You end up at uh, 77 Squadron. How come? Oh, that was because uh, a person on our course uh, was an engineer. He'd, he'd uh, joined the Air Force with an engineering degree and he'd only get one flying posting. Right. I was posted to Malaysia and he was posted to 77. And he was getting married and he wanted to go to Malaysia, so I swapped with yeah, him. You swapped around? Yeah. Um, you allowed to do that? Well, the CO phoned up uh, DPO and, and said it would be okay, that I was quite okay to be at Williamtown, uh, that I'd look after myself properly. <laughs> so that, <laughs> and did you? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I'm not dead. <laughs> okay, fair yeah. enough. This was obviously still at a young age and we've got Vietnam in the background. How did that play in your mind and in your role and in what you did day to day? Well, unfortunately for us, uh, mirages weren't compatible with the operations over there. So the only way anyone would go to uh, Vietnam from fighters was as a forward air controller. And in the squadron I was in, that happened. People went. 
Mm. Um, lots of the senior guys went and uh, came back and uh, told us all about it. We had regular intel briefings on the Vietnam War every week. Uh, so we, we really understood what was going on. But uh, I, the, the war ended before I would have been in a position to get a posting that way. Even though you weren't posted there, to what extent in the RAAF in particular did the members of the RAAF who didn't go to Vietnam feel part of the Australian commitment to Vietnam? Oh, we certainly did. Um, we, it, it was our war at the time and uh, you, could, you could go there. For instance, when I did a, a combat survival course after pilot's training, I took it very seriously and everyone did because it was something that you might end up doing uh, if an aircraft uh, was shot down or something. Uh, but following the, uh, the war closely with intel was very important and we, we understood what was going on. And plus uh, our friends that went, oh, I had friends that were killed there. Mm. And, and so, uh, yeah, we, we kept up with it. I was really... Mm. If you had not joined up, even though your family didn't want you to join up, you could have ended up there anyway through the, the birthday raffle. Yeah, well, my birthday is the 25th of April and I thought that would be a Monty to be called out. And I was actually at Pierce when um, my 20th birthday came along and uh, had I been scrubbed on pilot's course after having spent a year in the RAF, I could have, could have been gone to the Army. And, and so, uh, yeah, you, you really felt it at the time. Yeah, I can understand. Yeah. Some of the people you met and the influences they had on you uh, while you were at 77. What, early on, do you mean? Early on. Oh, yes, yes. Um, the, the senior pilots were all excellent, and uh, um, I learned a lot from them. Uh, I still keep in touch with Dave Robson, who meant a lot to me at the time. Mm. Uh, and, of course... Uh, I, uh, but I learned from the CO, who was uh, Bill Simmons, picture behind me there, um, and lots of people. Uh, Jim Treadwell. I spent a lot of time with Jim Treadwell. Mm. When, I, uh, when, when the Deltas were formed, I was posted to B-Flight and uh, into the photo recce game, and uh, so I did that, that conversion. I did the, the course, and uh, I was happily working with him, and uh, he taught me a lot of stuff. I mean, he's a wonderful character. You've already interviewed the tread, and uh, he's a person that I have great fondness for. So, uh, yes, I learned a lot from those people because they, they were all experienced pilots. The, there sure. were two bog rats. There was me as a pilot officer and Alf Allen, who was uh, a more senior uh, bog rat than, than myself. But uh, I was the absolute uh, junior and, uh, you know, learning from everybody. Mm. Steve, I mean, having done these interviews now for a little while, I'm getting a, an amazing view of what the RAAF is and how rich its history is and how diverse its personnel are. What does it feel like to have been part of such an important part of Australian history with, in the Defence Forces? When, when you spend a lot of time training, and certainly the, the kind of training that uh, you do and in, in, in certainly flying fighters, it'll never leave you. It's always part of you. And uh, as it is when you, you, you meet people that you flew with or knew back then, and uh, it's, it's something that's deeply ingrained and it's a point that having been a fighter pilot, uh, to me, it's the greatest 
profession on the planet and having done it is um, very satisfying. Was it in 1981, I think, you were promoted to squadron leader? Yeah, that's right. What led to that? How does that occur in the RAA? For someone who's listening to you who doesn't understand the ranks. Okay, well, yeah, field rank or or the the step from um, the equivalent of a captain in the army to the equivalent of major to squadron leader is uh, by selection. It's not automatic. Every promotion before that is on time Mm -hmm. and after that... um, so many years is it six years as a flight lieutenant I think and but you had to do prerequisite mm-hmm. uh, courses uh, service writing and various other things you had to do uh, but but then uh, on satisfactory performance in your duties you'd be recommended uh, by your annual reporting and uh, so that would happen you've said what 2,000 hours you've spent in mirages how many of those 2,000 would have been Butterworth Singapore as opposed to being in Australia Roughly, not a third. Roughly a third. A third. Mm. And what's it like in a Mirage flying in Butterworth, Singapore, Singapore, Australia? Are there differences in the flying patterns? Are there differences in the the approach you take? Or are they all the same? Firstly, the weather's different, uh, very different, uh, humid. The Mirage had no air conditioning below 6,500 feet. When you went for a flight in Malaysia, you'd expect to lose... 10 pound in weight and you would come back ringing wet, um, absolutely ringing wet in your own sweat. Pitching out into the circuit, the sweat had drained down out of your helmet into your eyes, you know, that sort of thing, even only 2G. So it was a very different way of operating. The other thing is higher temperature. The impulse factor on a jet engine is, is less. On a cold day, it's much better. You know, on takeoff, for instance, here on a, a winter's day, you'll get better performance out of a jet engine than you would on a hot day. And Malaysia was, was like that. Minor differences, but it, it would be significant. They are, sit, they are. Yeah, 10% or something. But so, so the operations there, certainly with uh, operating in another country with air traffic control and the radar controllers, that's different. And of course, over there was the weather where a thunderstorm would go up to 60, 65,000 feet. And if one hit over the Butterworth or, you know, whichever runway you were operating out of in Singapore, it'd be a very serious matter and you might have to divert or hold or whatever. And we always had that as a threat. The only other good thing about that was that the thunderstorm was usually quite localised. You could often land going the other way on the runway, just reverse and land on Was flying in the tropical storm advised against? Oh, definitely. Um, A thunderstorm over there. When we had the first lot of radios before we had the had the, the new radio suite in the aircraft, you could hear you could hear the lightning building up before it let off, and uh, you, but you wouldn't fly into one of those, and we, we had a radar so we could avoid it. Mm. But, uh, you know, the, the, there were lightning strikes aircraft, and the big threat there was that uh, you lost total electrics, which could happen, yeah. so you'd come back flying at night. I'm interested to know how a person in the Air Force ends up as aide-de-camp to a governor, <laughs> as, as what you did with the governor of Victoria. Well... You'd have to ask uh, deep, you know, DPO that question. Uh, they obviously pick people who are, you know, coming up for posting and they select somebody who, for, for whatever reason, I believe that they were trying to develop my career. I had utmost faith in DPO at all, <laughs> at all times. And, uh, and so, yeah, that was it. What I, was I mean, it like? Oh, it was really interesting. Um, I went down, uh, I was in Butterworth, I flew down in Hercules uh, my best friend and I went for the interview from there and uh, I was selected. 
but uh, we we met the Chief Justice in his chambers and went up to Government House, which is Government House Melbourne is this most amazing building, absolutely uh, stunning. And uh, when I was uh, posted there, I turned up. I didn't have a uniform. The the Air Force had changed uniforms. I only had the old dark blue ones. And so I had to go and get them all fitted. And it took me about uh, a month before I had anything other than a lounge suit that I could go to places for the functions. And, you know, we'd have to wear a dinner suit or a morning suit or whatever the hell it was. Um, When I had a uniform, I could wear that basically anywhere. But, uh, yes, there were always those uh, things. And uh, living in the house, um, I had my own footman, which was rather an experience. And, uh, well, it was was necessary at times because in a day we might might have uh, people calling on the governor in the morning, go somewhere at lunch to a function, uh, even possibly in the afternoon, and then at night we might go out again. So I would come in very quick time between changes of clothes so mm. the footman would have it all laid out on the bed so I could just come in and get come changed and, get and go changed. again. It, as, a, as a job, we had to we had to arrange the itinerary pardon me, of the governor's visits. So when we would uh, go out in the evening, um, there'd be a minimal t- downtime to get ready and go. And in arranging the governor's uh, itinerary, we would actually, at this place, we would actually manage it so that we'd make sure it happened according to plan. So there was a, a side to that that sometimes you'd have to be quite firm with people yeah. um, in making sure the protocol was correctly followed. Were you in this role during the dismissal of the oh, yeah. Prime Minister? Yes, I was. Tell us about um, that. Um, Governor Winnicky didn't want to be the one that rode around in a phaeton and opened the Melbourne Cup. And so he declined to do it, which was the first governor to do so. And the Governor-General took it up. And the Governor-General came and stayed with us for about a week every Melbourne Cup week, mm. uh, as did a lot of other people, uh, governors and, and what have you. And uh, one night, uh, the Governor-General, Governor Winnicky and I were sitting in a small drawing room about half the size of the room we're in now and uh, having a few drinks. And they began talking about what he had to do on Monday, which was... Uh, the 11th Zach of Mr. November. Yeah, Zach Mr Whitlam. I understood what that was all about because uh, those of us who knew the... Uh, government was about to run out of money we were were three weeks and they had Mm. no money contractors weren't being paid etc so it was all about that and it was a very uh, interesting day we had about 5,000 people turn up at government house gates big iron gates complaining and very annoyed about it all yes so it was a rather interesting experience to be sitting there so in that role you really were involved or you're sitting in on most of the conversations that were being had at that level yeah a lot of the time yes um, whether it was in the car or something like that. Um, again, uh, visiting dignitaries, uh, that didn't happen as much, but we certainly interp- had an interrelation with them, like King Hussein visited. He was, he was one of the first that came. His aide-de-camp was a hunter pilot, Hawker hunter, had flown in the 67 war, had shot down a Mirage 3. Ah. <laughs> so we had some very interesting conversations. And uh, King Hussein was a wonderful man. Uh, he, he was actually a great Arab leader, as, as such. But uh, when he left, he, he gave me a brand new uh, Breitling Navitimer watch. And Do you still a, have it? Yes. 
Yeah, they're, they're worth about seven grand. No, 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 no. Yeah. They're worth 15 grand yeah. now. Well, this one's different because the back of it has got his crown. Oh, it's um, probably worth more, Steve, yeah. I can assure you. Yeah. I don't wear it very often. No, I But do. it's a beautiful thing. And, uh, well, what a wonderful gesture. It is. Um, it was funny, the royal family, when, uh, when they came, uh, and two members came, was Prince Charles and Princess Anne at different occasions. When they were leaving, they would call you in and present you with a photograph of themselves. It's very interesting because that photo was probably worth more at the time than the watch, uh, you know, if you wanted to sell it. But uh, it, it's very typical of, of I guess, the award system when you think of uh, something that doesn't cost very much, means so much, and is worth so much. And I, I guess the ultimate example of that is the Victoria Cross. It's the least, most impressive award to look at. But the most honourable. That's right. But when you see someone wearing one on their suit, you realise what it is. But, um, the brightest and glitziest one is an MBE. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and done so for that reason. Yeah. Uh, look, just reflecting back on why were you selected, um, given that you're in that very private situation and involved in a very, very important part of Australian history in terms of the dismissal of a Prime Minister. Maybe the people that made the selection of you and your friend and you got the job in the first instance saw this person has the potential to go on and be other things. And of course, you did become other things. You became a wing commander. Mm. No, look, 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 any honourable officer could have done that job. Uh, they, would, they would have the, the respect of uh, confidentiality and, and decorum and understand the protocols. So mm. I, I don't think that was it. It was just, I was just the, the right place at the right time, uh, more than anything. Um, my friend who didn't get uh, the job we went for became the aide-de-camp to the Governor-General. Listening to what Steve Lowe is saying, you can see why joining the RAAF can have some very, very positive consequences. What about the Diamond Jubilee Air Show? Tell us about that, Steve. I was told by the outgoing CO that I would be doing that, and I don't know how that came about, but I, I think it might have something to do with Air Commodore Simmons, who was OC of the base. I was talking to him uh, about the Diamond Jubilee, and we always felt the Mirage paint scheme was inadequate. We had grey aircraft and we had the, the lizard camouflage, and in the sky the grey looked white and the lizard looked like a black dot always. And, and so we wanted to be able to change that, and I asked him if we could... It was about time we had a new paint scheme, and his idea, the ultimate show man, was uh, that we have a red, white, and blue aircraft. And so I said about, I, I was the one that came up with the, the scheme, and the, the gentleman down at 481 Squadron turned it into reality, and they did a fantastic job. Mm. And so uh, for the Schofield Air Show, we turned up with these red, white, and blue jets. The, uh, we did a lot of training for it uh, to get ready, and of course, the challenge in, at that time was that the Mirage, uh, with its or turn radius, um, in order to tighten an air display, we basically didn't have smooth endings to a manoeuvre. As soon as it finished, we were just with 6G to turn around and come back again. And so we timed it so the pair of us could do synchronised aerobatics and uh, we could then keep the crowd entertained for the maximum period of time. And we had smoke, which uh, helped with the Mirage being a small aircraft, mm. but on a clear day, the white jet showed up very well in the sky so it was uh, a bonus that way. But it's very challenging and worth doing. And uh, one of those things that I guess few people get to do is be part of an aerobatic team, but a lot of fighter pilots get to do that. Steve, I think you're also 
were you not or are you not a member? You have been a member of every operational Mirage squadron? Yeah, I think I'm the only person to do so yeah. in, in that time. And I don't think uh, others may have flown with Sabres or something, but flying Mirages was 79 and 76, mm. which had been disbanded in about 77, I think, mm. uh, was certainly a... Uh, you know, a rare opportunity. Now, your final posting, that was on Hornets. What was that jump like? Well, I didn't accept it. Um, I resigned. I was to take over from John Kindler. It was time for me to leave the Air Force, so I did. Was the reason you left, was it just because it's time or because you didn't want to leave the Mirages? I mean, what was the motivation? Oh, both, but I was, um, I, the, the Mirage was, uh, my last flight in the Mirage was to park one at Woomera, which, uh, you know, was, was the end of the aircraft. It was, no, the Mirage was, was finishing off within a year. No, I, I wanted to spend more time with my family. I wanted to be part of my kids growing up and I wanted to, uh, you know, start a, another venture in my life, which was uh, the Beef farm cut. I'd bought, yeah. Yeah, from listening to what you've been saying, and it's been an extraordinary experience and an honourable experience to be involved in this chat, it seems as though the RAAF like with so many others, has provided you with not only training and all of those other things, but has provided you with the mechanism to be able to continue to make a meaningful contribution to the community in which you live. Yeah, exactly. I'm nothing special in that regard. I believe everyone who was doing what we did would be capable of doing just that because of the training and the training you give your subordinates so that uh, they're, they're real skills. And, and people who have been in the Air Force have gained a lot of training. That sort of thing just isn't available on Civvy Street. Steve Lowe, AM, Wing Commander, retired. Thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.